The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. We're going to take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. Uh, This is our first sermon of the new year, of course, and I'm pleased that we can begin this new year with a sermon that focuses on Jesus Christ. Last week, I explained that all of our messages have Jesus as a theme, but we don't often concentrate the message uh, directly on Jesus Christ. It may be things that surround, of course, many doctrines of the faith. But now we are studying our Savior through the lens of the Old Testament scriptures and specifically how Jesus was made known through the Old Testament symbols of tabernacle worship. Throughout the month of December... And today, this is our theme. I wanted to, to end the year with something different, more than the normal uh, selection of Christmas messages and scriptures. And so we're looking at this portion of scripture. And some of these things that we've studied in the past few weeks, you may have thought at the beginning, have nothing at all to do with Christmas and this season. But I hope after hearing the messages that you think differently as the Old Testament is as much as concerned with the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the New Testament. God promised that he would dwell with us in the Old Testament, that he would come. And then in the New Testament, he fulfilled that promise with the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the first act of worship in the Bible suggested the coming of Christ. The first animal sacrifice that was made was an indication of it. It's also confirmed uh, early on in scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 when God said that the woman's offspring would be bruised by the seed of the serpent. Now that bruising, of course, is the crucifixion of our Lord. And then the Old Testament gives other indications of a of the coming of Christ with special appearances of him. The pre-existent Son of God appeared in, old, in the Old Testament at certain times. But the most expressive symbols of, of Christ coming into the world, the most expressive symbols that foretold his coming is found in the system of tabernacle worship that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. In these few messages over the past uh, month, I've given only a small sampling of these symbols. And the most sacred of them all was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there are many others that are incredible signs of the life, the ministry, and the death and resurrection of Christ. But the Ark of the Covenant is the one that stands above all. Most of you here today are longtime Bereans. You're well acquainted with the years that I've spent going through tabernacle worship. And so what I've done is to adapt this part of the study for Christmas and the beginning of the new year. And then after preaching a few of these messages, I felt compelled that we should continue. And so after the message today, we're going to pick this up again at the end of this month. Now, if you'll please look at the passage in Exodus, the scripture says... In the uh, 25th chapter, verses 10 and 11. Exodus 25, verses 10 and 11. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, And shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. This is our fifth message on the Ark of the Covenant. And without doubt, the Ark was the most important and fascinating of all the articles of the tabernacle. God told Moses to build a sanctuary 
where he would meet with the people, where he would give a visual manifestation, a visual expression of his presence. Now, in one way, we can say that the tabernacle was built primarily as a shelter for the Ark of the Covenant. First on the list of instructions that God gave Moses was the blueprint for the Ark. And above the Ark, on the mercy seat, is where God's glory was seen in a brilliant light that is called the Shekinah. From this chapter on through chapter 30, there are more instructions for every part of the tabernacle structure and furnishings, but it was the instructions for the Ark that came first. In chapter 36, the offering of materials began as every morning the people gladly and willingly brought the supplies that were needed to build the tabernacle. Good craftsmen who could make tarps and braid rope and saw lumber began building the structure. That was the less technical work that was done, but it still required men that were skilled in these crafts. But as we look at the Ark of the Covenant and the other fine furnishings that went on the inside of the tabernacle, these were made by two incredible artisans named Bezaliel and Aholiab. And their job was to make these these articles as near to perfection as humanly possible. And the finished product, when they were done with it, that would, this would represent the skill of their craftsmanship. So as they made these, Every attention was paid to the details. Uh, and this, this would turn out to be the finest example of their abilities. Now, the work was meticulous because this was the most important symbol of Jesus Christ. The ark would represent the presence of God who one day would come to live with us in human flesh. And, of course, the ability that they had to construct all of these articles to the specifications that were required was given by God. And I would dare say that there is no work of human hands that exceeded the skill of the men who were gifted for this. And I believe that the beauty of the ark was a marvel that was beyond anything that any human hands have ever made. And because it was so unique and valuable, it's hard to imagine that anyone would try to destroy it. So before we go on to the last part of our study today, I want to speak to you for just a few minutes about the disappearance of the Ark of the Covenant. For about a thousand years, Israel had the Ark, uh, and then it was gone. It was made around 1000 or 1400 B.C., and put into the tabernacle, then about 1000 B.C., it was moved into the new temple that was built by Solomon. And there it remained until around 550 B.C., uh, or a little bit before that, and then it was gone. There is no reference in the scriptures about what happened to it. The Bible doesn't tell us where it is, what happened to it, whether it was destroyed. There's just nothing in the Bible that tells us anything about it. And it's important and as prominent as the ark was uh, to Israel's worship, we would think that God would have put a heavenly tracking device on it so, so everybody would always know where the ark of the covenant was. But curiously, the ark just seems to go away without ceremony or mention. It's just gone. When Solomon built the temple, all of the furnishings from the tabernacle were moved into it. Now, these articles, especially the ark, were brought in with great ceremony. Last week we read about this in 1 Kings chapter 8. So I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8 once again, if you would. And uh, I want to read this, uh, read about the transition from tabernacle worship to temple worship. And I'd like to focus on a different part of the scripture than we did last time. Uh, our last discussion concerned the, the long poles that were used to uh, transport the ark. And now I'd like us to see what happened when the ark was put into its place where it remained for more than 400 years. This is in First Kings chapter 8 beginning in verse number 3. And all the elders of Israel came and the priest took up the ark. 
And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of the congregation and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those that the priests and the Levites bring up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told or numbered for multitude. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord into its place, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubims spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, And the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves, that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle. And they were not seen without, and there they are unto this day. There was nothing in the ark, save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Now we understand that the tabernacle was a tent that could be moved. It was not a permanent structure. The temple, though, was... A magnificent building that was far more worthy and a much more beautiful place for the ark to be kept. When it was put into the permanent place, the Bible says here that the cloud of God's presence filled the temple. The priests weren't able to minister because of it. This cloud was like a thick fog that made them lose their sense of direction. And over the next 400 years or so, the ark stayed in one place in the Holy of Holies. Now, this is the reason the staves were pulled out only slightly. It's because it was not intended that the ark should be moved again. On the day that the ark was moved and the other vessels were brought into the temple, there were many sacrifices that were made. The dedication of the temple was a high holy day with thousands of these sacrifices so that there was never another day like this in all of Israel's history. I I think that probably the people were closer to the Lord at that moment than they were at any time. And, And I'd like to remind you that the closeness and reverence for the ark had much to do with King David's attitude about it. The scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. And worship is something that is paramount in God's heart. God wants worship. David always highly respected the ark. And he knew what it meant to be in God's presence. Now next week I I plan to return to the study of worship to finish that series. and, And would to God that we would feel his presence with us like we've never felt it before. Our numbers in Berean are fewer than they have been in years past, but that doesn't mean the quality of our service needs to diminish. This group of people can be the closest to God, the closest to the Savior of any group before it. And I think that that's one thing that we ought to strive for in this coming year. Now, returning to David's respect for the ark, I want to mention the, uh, once again, the familiar incident that reflects his overexcitement and overreaching to do more than God asked him to do regarding the ark. And this happened before the temple was built. David wanted to move the ark to Jerusalem to have it near him. And with much fanfare, he started the process of moving it. David and the musicians played their instruments, they, they played their harps, their cornets, their cymbals, and David danced before the ark as it was brought towards Jerusalem. It was quite a show, just much like a jubilant festival as they moved the ark to bring it to Jerusalem. But David made a fatal mistake. He pushed beyond God's orders for the way that the ark was to be moved and the timing That the ark was to be moved. What they did. What David did. Was to put the ark on a cart. And they started the journey. 
on the way, before they, about the time that they reached Nalkon's threshing floor, as they approach, the oxen stumbled. You know the story, how that uh, the ark shook as the ark oxen stumbled. Uzzah, one of the Levites, was afraid something would happen to the ark, and so to protect the ark, he reached out and touched it to steady it, and immediately God struck him dead. Uzzah was not supposed to touch it. God commanded no one was supposed to touch it. And David was wrong by putting it on a cart. Now, I don't know if, if the Levites warned David about this uh, and said, you shouldn't do this. And David said, no, we're going to do this anyway. I don't know if that was the conversation between them. Or maybe the Levites were agreeable and they said, well, you know, we've got a long way to go to move this ark. So the easiest thing for us to do is just put it on a cart and move it. I don't know. But in any case, when Uzzah touched it, God killed him. David was upset about that. He was upset that the man died, no doubt. But I think that probably he was more upset that his plans were ruined. They were stopped. He couldn't take the ark to Jerusalem. David's motives were good, I believe. I know that he loved the Lord God. He was devoted to the holiness of the ark. But nonetheless, you can't honor God unless you obey. And that was another lesson that David learned the hard way. So we come to 1 Kings chapter 8. The temple was finished. And it was the proper time to move the ark. It was handled correctly. And it was placed in this magnificent temple that Solomon built. And it stayed there as a symbol of God's presence. But despite the magnificent temple in which the ark was placed, despite the presence of the ark, the next 400 years in Israel was a time of turmoil. Solomon died. His son Rehoboam became the king. He was a fool and lacked Solomon's wisdom. And his foolish mistakes caused division in the kingdom. Ten northern tribes rebelled. Soon they were immersed in idolatry. They rejected the temple that Solomon built. And they built their own temples to worship heathen gods. The remaining southern tribes, known as Judah, stayed faithful to the Lord for a while... But soon they were also drawn away into idolatry. There were some periods of revival during this time. Uh, There were good kings like Hezekiah and Josiah. But for the most part, Judah was far away from God. And because of their unfaithfulness, God chastised them by using foreign nations to conquer them. And so in the early 6th century B.C., The Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and the noose was tightly drawn around the city and they were unable to hold out and so the enemy fell or the uh, city fell to the enemy. The Babylonians then tore down the city walls of Jerusalem. They looted and sacked the temple and destroyed it. This was during the time of Jeremiah. Now if you'll turn to 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 26... 36 rather, we can see what the king of Babylon did with the furnishings of the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 36, beginning in verse 5. Jehoiakim, that's, that was the king of Judah at the time. Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now we have only this short phrase in verse number 7 that says that Nebuchadnezzar carried the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon. There's no specific mention of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark was not an insignificant treasure. The pagans of Babylon knew very well the story of Israel's God. They knew the significance of the Ark. And so we would think that when they captured the city, that they would go into the temple and they would head straight for the Holy of Holies, that they would fetch the Ark 
And with great fanfare, they would declare their victory over Israel's God, just as the Philistines had done years before when they captured it. But there's no mention of this. Why? Was it still there? Did they take it? Or was it already gone? Now, perhaps they did take it, but God didn't want the historians to make a big deal of it. Second Kings chapter 24 verse 13 says that Nebuchadnezzar cut the golden treasures of the temple in pieces. And so maybe the ark was one of those treasures. Not all the treasures were destroyed because Second Chronicles says that some of them were put into the temple in Babylon. Then years later, when the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, they took possession of these same vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken. And then King Cyrus... Uh, permitted Judah to return to Israel to rebuild the temple, and he sent these vessels back to Jerusalem to be put into the new temple. Still, there isn't any mention of the Ark of the Covenant, and that would have been very significant. Maybe it was one of the pieces that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. But in any case, the Ark was never seen in Jerusalem again. The second temple that was built by Zerubbabel had no Ark. The expansion of that temple in Herod's time, which was the temple in the time of Jesus and the apostles, had only a stone on the spot where the Ark of the Covenant should have been. So now we're back to what happened to the Ark. Well, the last mention in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah 3.16. In Jeremiah 3.16, if you'd like to, to look at this and Maybe mark this in your Bible as the last time that the Bible mentions the Ark of of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 3.16. And it shall come to pass, when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, Neither shall that be done anymore. This is a very interesting comment because it seems that Jeremiah's purpose is to relieve the grief of losing the ark. The reference that he makes here is to the millennial kingdom in which the ark will not be necessary. It isn't necessary because Jesus Christ, who is the object of the ark, who is the antitype of the ark, who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, will be enthroned in the new temple in the millennial kingdom. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So there could be a dual purpose in Jeremiah's prophecy. Naturally, there was grief over the destruction of the temple. It was troublesome for the ark to be gone. But Jeremiah helps them with that grief by reminding them of the Lord's promise that there will be a new kingdom. And in this kingdom, God will be personally present, not in types and figures, not in shadows of the law, but God will be with them personally, and so they wouldn't need the ark. But since the ark was so significant, it's still quite strange that God doesn't tell us what happened to it. There are some who speculate that Jeremiah took it and hid it during the siege of the city. Knowing that the Babylonians were about to breach, he secured it from the temple and he hid it away so they wouldn't have the satisfaction of capturing it. In the second book of Maccabees, one of the apocryphal books, it said that Jeremiah hid the ark in a cave on Mount Nebo. Now you may, you may recognize Mount Nebo because that Moses' grave was in the vicinity of Mount Nebo. Let me read to you from Second Maccabees, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I want you to listen to how these verses read, and, and you'll understand maybe a little bit better why we reject the apocryphal books as, as uh, inspired scripture. In fact, Jesus and the apostles never quoted from anything in the apocrypha. These verses refer to the capture of Jerusalem and the deportation of the people from Babylon. This is... 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verse number 1. In the records, it will be found that Jeremiah the prophet ordered the deportees to take some of the fire with them as indicated, 
and that the prophet, in giving them the law, directed the deportees not to forget the commandments of the Lord or be led astray in their thoughts when seeing the gold and silver idols and their adornments. Now that's warning the, the captives taken from Jerusalem that when they got into Babylon, they would see the magnificence of their temples and their idols that they worship, and they were not to be drawn away into the worship of those same gods. Verse number three, it says, with other similar words, he exhorted them that the law should not depart from their hearts. In other words, remember the Lord, their God and his law. The same document also tells how the prophet, in virtue of an oracle, ordered that the tent and the ark should accompany him. And how he went to the very mountain that Moses climbed to behold God's inheritance. When Jeremiah arrived there, he found a chamber in a cave in which he put the tent, the ark, and the altar of incense. Then he sealed the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up intending to mark the path, but they could not find it. When Jeremiah heard of this, he reproved them. The place is to remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows them mercy. Then the Lord will disclose these things. And the glory of the Lord in the cloud will be seen just as they appeared in the time of Moses and of Solomon when he prayed that the place might be greatly sanctified. If you believe that Maccabees is the inspired word of God, then this must be true. It's not the inspired word of God. So we don't know any more about what happened to it than before I started reading. This is just another of somebody's myths. Now today, there are some who say that the Ark of the Covenant is hidden beneath the Temple Mount. And they hope that someday that they will rediscover it. But they can't dig beneath the Temple Mount now because the Muslims control that area. So they can't do anything there. That's just part of the speculation. Nobody knows. Well, again, I don't think that Maccabees is the word of God. And I believe that Jeremiah chapter 3 that we read just a moment ago rules out finding the ark. It's gone because God didn't want the Jews or anybody else to make an idol of it. Christ came. He lives. He's what that ark symbolized. And so the ark is unnecessary. My favorite movie of all time is Raiders of the Lost Ark. The premise is, is intriguing. I remember this was the most exciting movie that I'd ever seen. I came out, what, 40 years ago, something like that. Indiana Jones said that the Ark was taken to Tanis in Egypt by Pharaoh Shishak. Where did he get that idea? Well, interestingly, it's not unfounded. Second Chronicles chapter 12 and verse... Number nine. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Now this happened during the reign of Jeroboam, which means that if the ark was taken at this time, it was already gone when Jeremiah wrote about it. Indiana Jones said that Pharaoh Shishak took it, and Tanis was, is, is where the ark was, and so he went there and he found it. But then he lost it. And it's, it's interesting speculation, but it's doubtful that the ark is lost and it's in a box in a warehouse with thousands of boxes, and nobody's there and nobody's looking for it. Nobody knows it's there, nobody's looking for it. And I don't believe that God intends for us to find it in a warehouse. Let me mention one more idea. There are many others, but this is one that seems to travel better than most. Some think that the ark was transported to heaven, and that's where it is now. Listen to this. This is in Revelation uh, 11, verse number 9. You might have to help me back there. There we go. Revelation 11, verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament... And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So there are people who believe that the ark was taken into heaven. Is that the ark that Moses made? 
Well, I, I think that you should know that after this long study that it couldn't be. What was the blueprint for the tabernacle? Doesn't the Bible say that the tabernacle was made after a pattern of things that are in heaven? So the ark that is in heaven is the pattern. It's no more the one that Moses made than the golden lampstand in heaven came, came from the temple or the altar of incense came from the temple. They are the pattern for the things that Moses made. Now, the, the things that were made by Moses were made by good men, but they were sinful men. What they made does not belong in heaven. There's nothing in heaven that's made by men. You remember the words of this song? And the only thing there that's been made by man are the scars in the hands of Jesus. I think that's right. Well, folks, that's a long introduction to the final point. If you know where the ark is, please let me know. I'll tell George Lucas there is another movie to be made. Now, in our, in our first message, we spoke of the focal point of worship, the figure of worship. You can get an explanation of those headings from previous sermons. So my third and final observation is the fullness of worship. Let me take you back to the comment uh, about Jeremiah 3.16. The Lord said that when Israel is returned to the land, they would not need the Ark of the Covenant. They can forget it because they don't need a symbol of God's presence. Jesus Christ will be with them. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he will be visibly present in the kingdom. Now, the ark was a type of this fullness that Jesus Christ is God of very God. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The ark, I explained, was a box. That's what ark in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word means. It just means a box. And usually a box is, is made to put something in, isn't it? This box had a lid, which indicates, well, there is something to be kept in it. And there was something kept in the ark. In fact, there was more than something. There were three somethings that were on the inside. Now, let me make a point first about the number three. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of the person of Christ. Who is he? He is God and man. He is fully God. And God is three in one. God is a trinity. Now, since Christ is the fullness of the Godhead, it seems appropriate that what they would do is to put three articles in the box. Now, you need to be careful about this and what I'm saying because I'm not saying that each of these articles represents a person in the Godhead. What I am saying is they represent the fullness of God in Christ. What was in the ark? Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 9. Uh, we, we could take this information from the Old Testament in more than one reference and we could look several places, but we have a the complete contents summarized in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 and verse number 2. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, that means the first compartment of the tabernacle, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, this is the second compartment, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. So inside the Ark of the Covenant, there are three things, a golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, that is the tables of stone that God wrote the law. By the time that the ark was moved into Solomon's temple, there were only one there was only one article. Two two of these weren't there any longer. The only thing in the ark was the tables of the law. But in Moses' time, as they carried the ark throughout the wilderness and they set up the tabernacle, these three items were inside the ark. Why were they there and what did they mean? Well, first in the ark 
was the golden pot of manna. And the manna represents God's provision. I think this is something that we should think about as we enter the new year. As God's people, we enter this year expecting that God will supply our needs just as he always has. Christians don't fear the economy because we know that God will take care of us. Not always to our selfish desires, but God will give us the amount that he knows is good for us. Manna was God's supernatural supply of bread in the wilderness. Bread is a staple of life, and God gave it to satisfy their hunger and also to satisfy their complaints. God supplied them physical bread, and he supplies ours. We should thank him for that. But more importantly, he also supplies spiritual bread, which is the food that we get from his word. If I ask, how are Jesus and bread alike? Well, I think we all know what he said about manna. He's the living bread, the true bread. He explained this. He's the true bread that came down from heaven. He's the living word, which is the living bread of God. God taught Israel an object lesson through manna. It came down from heaven and it nourished them. When Israel came out of Egypt, it wasn't to let them starve. This they complained about. Sadly, the people had to be hungry only for just a few minutes. And this is exactly what they accused Moses and God of doing. They said, you have brought us out here to, to you're trying to starve us to death. This is in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. It says, And the whole congregation of children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now consider this. That if Israel had been, had been faithful and they trusted God, they would never have needed manna. The trip from Egypt to Canaan should have only taken about three weeks. But because of their constant complaining and their lack of faith, it took 40 years. There wasn't enough food in the desert to feed millions of people for 40 years. And so God gave them manna. God provided. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was a golden pot of manna. Gold is for God, and the manna is God's promise to provide. And this is what Jesus is. He is God's provision. Each of us needs spiritual life. We're all born dead in sin. We need spiritual life and righteousness, which could never be gained on our own. And so where will we get it? Where do we get this? Only from God's provision. He gave us a savior. So the golden pot of manna reminded them that God would not let them die. And putting it into the Ark of the Covenant, carrying it everywhere they went, was a symbol that God would supply everything they needed. And what did Jesus say? He said, if you drink, if you eat and drink of me, you will never hunger or thirst. The fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. He is all the provision you will ever need. Now secondly, in the ark was the rod. And this is all about God's selection. This requires some more investigation. Um, our time remaining this morning is brief. In fact, most of you think it's already gone. But Hebrews says, inside the ark was Aaron's rod that budded. Do you know why Aaron's rod budded? It was to prove who God selected for leadership and the priesthood. The story is found in Numbers 16 and 17. Some of the Israelites began to complain that Moses and Aaron should share leadership with them. They didn't believe that Moses was God's appointed. They thought that uh, Moses assumed leadership by his own authority. And there are many places that I could, I could go with this and talk to you about leadership in the church, but I'm going to save that for maybe some of the 51 other Sundays in this year. Did Moses fake his call? And was Moses guilty of nepotism 
when he said God appointed his brother Aaron as the high priest and spiritual leader of Israel. Well, Moses says, well, well, fellows, if you, if you, if you think this, if that's what you think, let's have a contest. Let's have a test to see who God chose and who he didn't. He said, you complainers, you come tomorrow and you bring a censer with you. Put fire in the censer and burn it before the Lord. And then God will show you which of us he has chosen. So there are 250 complaining men who brought their censers. Moses and Aaron brought theirs. And the result of the contest was that suddenly the earth quaked. It split apart. And 250 men who were somebody's dads and husbands and brothers and friends, 250 of them were set on fire and swallowed up and went down into the earth. And not only them, but their houses or their tents and everybody in their tents also went into the pit and the earth closed up over them. You'd think that would be the end of complaining. But it wasn't. Still the people complained. And they blamed Moses that 250 of the men and their families died. So God said, I've had enough of that. And he sent a plague. This time 14,700 died. And more would have died. Except Moses in his compassion had, had Aaron offer atonement for them. Now that is ironic, isn't it? The two guys that they said were overstepping their authority, used their authority to plead with God on their behalf. Well, after this, God said, we're going to settle this once for all. He said, I want each of the tribes to bring a rod. That is a wooden stick. Bring a wooden stick. Write your names on the stick. And so they collected 12 sticks from the 12 tribes of Israel, and they took those and put them in the tabernacle. God said... The one that blossoms is the tribe that I've chosen. So the next day, Moses went into the tabernacle to check the rods. And it turned out that Aaron's rod blossomed. And not only did it blossom, but it had almonds on it. So Moses took these sticks and he showed it to the men of Israel. And it was then that God said, I want you to take the rod, keep the rod that budded, and take it and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. So what does this mean? Well, the ark represents Christ, and the blossoming rod means that he is the one that God chose to redeem man. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God called his servant, the Messiah, mine elect, which means my chosen. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, 6, a scripture we read a moment ago, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, Precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And so the rod shows that Christ is God's choice. He was God's choice to be our Redeemer. He was God's choice to be our Mediator. He was God's choice to be the head of the church. He is God's choice to be the judge of the earth. And he is God's choice to be the king of the kingdom. And listen. He was chosen to all of these things, these high, holy, incomparable offices and rights. And then amazingly, he was also chosen to be a servant. How is that possible? And he took the appointment as a servant as welcomely and willingly as he did his appointment as the king. Do you understand why the father said that he was pleased with him? Do you understand why the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him? Now let's take a moment to look a a little closer at the rod that was put in the ark. What was so special about it? Well, it showed God's selection of his divine son, but it also tells us more. What did it do? Well, first, the branch budded. The branch budded. Each of the 12 sticks... These are nothing but dead sticks that were cut off from a tree. And when a, when a branch is severed from a tree, it withers and dies, doesn't it? The test was to see which one of these sticks would come back and show life even though it was dead. Now, I know that every one of you are too good at this to miss this. The buds are an indication of life. 
the dead stick came back to life. And what about Jesus? He was dead. He was severed from life. His, his heart stopped. His brain waves stopped. His flesh grew cold. He was dead and there was no confusion that he was dead. And then what happened? He came back to life. By the power in him as almighty God, he came back to life. A dead stick has no power to bud again, has no power to live again, and Jesus could not live again unless he is God. And this shows that the dead had the power of life. The rod was cut from a tree, it was a dead twig, but God caused it to bud, and that shows that God brings the dead to life. When Jesus died, three days later, he came back to life. Jesus told the Jews who always wanted a sign. Remember they always said this? Show us a sign of who you are and what you're going to do. He said there will be no sign given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days in the tomb, then he came back to life. You know what he could have said? He could have said, did you never read about Moses and Aaron and the rod that budded? That's a sign that you forgot about. That rod is me. The rod was a picture of Christ. That was worth preserving. Then secondly, the branch blossomed. It wasn't just a branch that came back to life. It was a branch that developed beautiful blossoms. And so perhaps in this, what we might see is the beauty of Christ in these blossoms. There's another song that says, how beautiful is the body of Christ. I think there's a twofold application. How beautiful is this man who loved and healed, who was gentle and kind. How beautiful is this man who had such compassion that he would die for us. And then how beautiful is his body, the church, when we live and act like Christ. Well, one more picture. When an almond tree blossoms, the next thing to come is fruit. The blossoms are a sign of fruit to come. So the branch bore fruit. Almonds grew on the dead twig. Now the fruit of Christ's resurrection is that all who believe in him will also live. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits. And become the firstfruits of them that slept. 1 Corinthians 15.23 But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward... They are Christ at his coming. And so this means that not only did Christ arise from, rise from the grave, but all believers will also rise from their graves when Christ comes again. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So God said, Keep Aaron's rod that budded and put it in the ark. Then there's one other item in the ark. Hebrews says the ark contained the tables of the covenant. And this is the law. The law is God's perfection. The law represents God's perfection. The tables of the covenant are the laws of God given on Sinai. God etched them in stone, then he gave them to Moses. Now Moses broke the first tables when he came down from the mountain and he saw the people violate the first commandment before he even had a chance to read them. He came down from Mount Sinai and he finds the people dancing naked around a golden calf. These, these stories are filled with irony. Aaron, who would become the high priest under the law, encouraged the people to break the first commandment. And so Moses was so angry that he threw the tables and he broke them. Now, interestingly, when Moses was up on the mountain, he told the people that God had come to prove them. And what does the law prove? Well, it proved them guilty. He couldn't even get it into their hands before they broke it. The entire world is guilty. The commandments prove it. So Moses broke the first tables when he saw Israel's idolatry. And then God, with his own finger, wrote him another set. And I suppose that God said to him, Moses, I don't want you to get mad again. So I don't want you to break these again. So put them in the ark for safekeeping. Don't write that down. I made that up. <laughs> so the tables were put into the ark underneath the mercy seat. And this was to show us that the blood of Christ covers the law and hides our transgressions 
from God. We can't keep the law, and so we needed Christ to keep it for us. The law is hidden in Christ. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, which pictures Christ, was the tables of the law. And just as God's law was kept in the Ark, God's law was kept in Christ. Christ had to keep the law perfectly. He must be the perfect man, or he wouldn't be an acceptable sacrifice. The cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith is justification. How can a person be just with God? And the answer to the question is the perfect righteousness of Christ. His goodness must be transferred to us by faith. His perfection in keeping every detail of the law to perfection is the righteousness that God used to satisfy our sins, the penalty of our sins. So the only righteousness that is accepted by God is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you will not get it, and you will not see God, except by faith in the offering of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Every person that is saved is saved because he believes this great truth. Christ died for our sins. He paid the just penalty of the law by giving his life in sacrifice on Calvary. So these are the types found in the Ark of the Covenant. Our focus in worship is Jesus. The figure of worship is Jesus. The fullness of worship is Jesus. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In 2022, make this your motto. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.